I'm going to read tonight from Joshua chapter 4, verse number 1 through 7. I'll read that in just a moment. Uh, At the turn of the year, a couple of years ago, I was listening to a radio program, probably driving somewhere, and the interviewer was interviewing a futurist and asking that futurist what the next year, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but what that year would hold and what this futurist would predict was going to happen in the coming year, what trends were on the horizon. And it was kind of an interesting discussion. And then kind of out of the blue, the the interviewer asked a question that probably some of you have wondered about before. He said, what does a futurist do anyway? (laughs) What do you do all day? If your job title is a futurist, what do you do? And the future said, well, I study history. Because when I look at where we've been, I know where we're going. So tonight I want to take a little look at where we've been in some personal ways and, and hopefully from that challenge you to think about where you're going. Uh, understanding the past helps you know where to go in the future. I saw this on a very practical way and a sad way. My, my mother-in-law is an incredibly uh, witty woman, raised seven children. She was the center of the home, and uh, she was renowned for her sense of humor. Uh, I, remember, I remember when I first visited my wife's home for the first time, and uh, she was a fierce game player, and she was playing Chinese checkers, and they sacrificed me and said, go play Chinese checkers with my mom. And like any good sports person, she could cheat and uh, laugh while she cheated. And I was trying to make an impression on everybody in that family because I was really impressed with their daughter. Uh, But as she got older, my mother-in-law contracted Alzheimer's, and we watched her disappear. At first she didn't know somebody's name um, or she didn't remember we'd been somewhere or or the stories, you'd hear the same story again. Five minutes later the story would come. But as that disease gripped her brain, she lost who she was as a person. Because if you have no memory of what was, You can't cope with what is. So memory makes life work for us. The story uh, that I'm going to read from Joshua is a story about memory. And it came to pass, verse 1 says, when all the people were clean. That sounds like good southern talk, right? Clean passed over Jordan. The Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men of the people out of every tribe of man, and command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord, your God into the midst of the Jordan and take you 
up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan, and the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. What Joshua was doing was creating a memorial or a monument that would be a marker because he recognized that there would come a day when people wouldn't have a first-hand experience of what it was like to cross the Jordan River. They hadn't participated in the miracle. They hadn't seen the water stop, stand still. They hadn't watched as the priest started to wade out into the river and the river backed up and they walked across on dry land. This was a momentous occasion for the nation of Israel. They had been working for this for 40 years. The promised land was on the other side of the Jordan River. The, the long-anticipated place where God had promised them, that had, he'd given to Abraham, their forefather, and they were going back to take what was rightfully theirs. And Joshua was concerned that they would not forget the miracle that God had done, nor forget what preceded that miracle, the years that they had wandered in the wilderness. And Joshua, by putting this memorial together and, and crafting a story, followed the tradition that was a part of many ancient cultures, and that was the idea of storytelling. The way people preserved their past was by taking time to tell stories, stories that rooted who they were. Their identity came from the stories that they heard. I, I can't tell you strongly enough how important the stories that you tell are to the future of your family. Stories have an ability to shape the soul. That's why we can't outsource that to Hollywood. Because the, the shaping of our soul will not be like we anticipate it to be. So the elders rehearsed the story and told the story. And when the kids came by and the grandkids came by, they came by and saw a pile of stones. And grandma said, or grandpa said, let me tell you what this stone means. One time we were enslaved. One time we were in bondage, but God, but God led us out. One time we wandered in the wilderness. We came to the brink of the promised land. Standing between us and the promised land was the river that was raging, but God stood that river still. And these stones are a reminder of what God can do. There is incredible power in the story. John's mentioned that I'd gone to Regent University a few years ago and uh, in the course of studying, uh, I found out that on the, in the curriculum there was a course on pedagogy, which is a fancy word for saying teaching. Surprisingly, having all that education, I'd really never taken a teaching course. So uh, I was looking forward in a PhD program to get the first crack at pedagogy, maybe learning how to teach a little bit. Uh, the professor for that class, I remember it well, you'll understand as I tell the story, but the professor for that class was Dr. Ruth Burgess, uh, 
who just happened to be the wife of the program director, which upped the ante on how well I needed to do in that course. And so when I got the syllabus for the course, looked at what we were going to do, I started immediately to intensely dislike the course of study. Uh, in fact, I got a C-plus in that class. Probably the worst grade I've ever gotten in my life. I'm not even sure how you get a C-plus and pass a Ph.D. course. And most of that was due to the bad attitude I had about the class. And the C-plus was a gracious gift from the professor. I, and I, I won't go into all the reasons that I disliked the class, but I did intensely. One of the assignments that she said that we needed to do was we needed to put together what she called a heritage box. And uh, she said, well, I want you to gather some artifacts from your life, and I want you to put them in a box, and maybe you can decorate the box a little bit, and I want you to bring that box with you to class. And somewhere, we, we, we would go in for a residency, so I was there for a couple of weeks, and somewhere in the course of that residency, we would put our, our boxes out on the table and people would look at the boxes and then we would get an opportunity as the class went on to share the contents of our heritage box. And uh, I was thinking, I'm in a PhD program and this is what you do in kindergarten. I have participated in show and tell. And I would be so looking forward to this class and yet, I was doing show and tell. So, and this is probably indicative of how I treated the class. I didn't spend much time in preparation for the heritage box. I grabbed a couple of things that I could take with me and found an old box. Well, I didn't find an old box. I thought, well, I'll wait till I get to Virginia Beach and I'll, I'll find a box somewhere and I'll take it to class. I don't remember everything that was in that box, but I remember two things that I'd I want to talk about briefly tonight. One of the things that I put in my heritage box was a Thompson Chain Bible that my church had given me when I went away to Bible college. In the fall of 1975, uh, I went, grew up in a little town in, in New Brunswick and went off to Gateway. Church had a little party, a going away party. In the church, the pastor presented me with a, a, a grown-up study Bible. You know, you're, you're, you're a Bible student now, so need a study Bible. So I still have that Thompson chain. Got to put a new cover on it a couple times. The other thing that was in that box was a, it's a green book, hardback book. Uh, it was a book called The Winds of God. The Winds of God was written by Ethel Goss, but it was really Howard Goss's story. And the reason that the book was significant was that it had Howard Goss's signature in the front of that book. And it belonged to my grandmother. So my grandmother had met Howard Goss, and he had, she, he had signed the book for her. And uh, when she found out that I was interested in things Pentecostal history-wise, she said, I, I want you to have this book. And so in my heritage box was this book by Howard Goss, signed by him. More importantly, 
It had come from my grandmother. So let me, let me tell you my grandmother's story. Uh, and I'll start, I'll start in the beginning of the Pentecostal movement and see if I, can, if I can trace the journey, her journey to Pentecost as I kind of walk through uh, modern Pentecostal movements. Most of you know I would, I would expect that, that the best place to date the beginning uh, of the modern Pentecostal movement is in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham, was a holiness preacher, and he was looking for more. And he had a little holiness uh, healing home called Bethel Healing Home, and he kind of went away for a while looking for further truth. He, he went to, up to uh, Chicago, to Dowie's Zion City, and he went uh, to New York, to Nyack, uh, to A.B. Simpson's Bible School and Missionary Training Institute, on up into a place called Shiloh, Maine. And when he came back from uh, that trip, that extended trip, the people who were running the healing home they'd left in charge kind of liked running the healing home. So he said, you can have it. And he started a Bible school called Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. He had, the, the school didn't last very long, less than a year. And they met, they had classes in an, a building, in a very Victorian-looking building that people in Topeka called Stone's Folly because Erastus Stone had started to build this extravagant house and had run out of money before the house was finished. So everybody in town called it Stone's Folly. And in that Stone's Folly, Charles Parham began to this, this Bible school. And just before Christmas, at the turn of the century, he was going away on a preaching trip, and he said, I want you students to find out if there's any uniform evidence, sign in the Bible of what it means to receive the baptism of the Spirit. And so when he returned from that trip after Christmas, he asked the students, is there any Bible sign of Spirit baptism? And the students said, the only Bible evidence that we find of Spirit baptism is speaking in tongues. And later that week, they, on, the, on, on New Year's Eve, they had a watch night service. And in that watch night service, a young lady who had come to study at that school named Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues. And Parham recognized this as the baptism of the Spirit. And it wasn't that people hadn't spoken in tongues before that. There weren't evidence of people speaking in tongues even in the years leading up to Topeka. But what made the Pentecostal movement the Pentecostal movement was the linking of the experience of speaking in tongues with a doctrine that said, this is the Bible sign of spirit baptism. People didn't know what people were doing when they spoke in tongues. Parham connected spirit baptism with speaking in tongues and put them together. And that doctrine, I would argue, formed the Pentecostal church the Pentecostal movement, or as, as Parham would call it, the apostolic faith movement. He was trying to restore the church to its apostolic roots. Uh, I've got to cover a lot of ground in a little bit of time. So let me move from, from Topeka, Kansas. It took a while for the revival to gain traction. He ended up in Houston, in Houston, Texas. 
and uh, had, had some young men and women with him who traveled out from Houston to, to Galveston, to Alvin, some of those towns. And then they would come back to Houston for periodic short-term Bible schools in a place on Rusk Avenue in, in, in what would be downtown Houston today. And uh, one of the people he met when he was in Houston was a holiness preacher, a female African-American holiness preacher, a preacher named Lucy Farrow. She had a little mission in Houston, and um, somehow they, they met. In fact, I was, I was in Houston a couple of, weeks, a couple of years ago where we, we found the graveyard where Lucy Farrow was buried, and the South Texas district put a gravestone uh, in that graveyard headstone to commemorate Lucy Farrow. So I was down for that service, and I met a, a, another Pentecostal historian there, and he told me a story about, in that little window of time, uh, Houston was a, a booming oil city. The oil had been discovered in that area, and it was starting to attract some wealth, and those, some of those people wanted to buy cars, automobiles. Uh, the problem with having an automobile in Houston in 1905 was that everybody else traveled by horse, and horse, they leave something behind. So in the evening, they would sweep the streets, and then for an hour or two, the people who owned cars could leisurely drive their cars down in downtown Houston, and probably in that time of the evening when the streets were sweet and the cars were out, Charles Parham probably was walking down that street with a band. He typically had a, like a gospel band with him and they would carry a big sign saying apostolic faith. Sometimes they would be dressed in, in uh, mid-eastern costume to attract attention. It was probably in that little window of time that Charles Parham ran across Lucy Farrell. And she embraced the Pentecostal message uh, and there was a man who had moved to Houston. He'd come various kind of a securitous route. He had been born in Louisiana, but like many young African Americans at the time, he migrated north, followed work. The south wasn't a terribly friendly place for an African American young male in the Reconstruction South. And so he'd made his way up the Mississippi, stopped to St. Louis and Chicago and Indianapolis. In Indianapolis, he he ran across uh, some people that were called the Evening Light Saints. And uh, he, he had an experience that in those days they called sanctification. And he, left, he left Indianapolis and went to Cincinnati where he attended a place called God's Bible School. And, and then somehow, and this part of the story is a little bit of a mystery to me, somehow he decided to go south again and he ends up in Houston. That African-American na man's name was William Seymour. And Seymour ended up as the associate pastor or the assistant pastor to Lucy Farrow in that little mission in Houston. And Lucy Farrow had, was doing governess work for the Parhams, and she brokered a deal where, where William Seymour could attend a Bible school that Parham was having. Some people say he had to sit outside and listen through a window or listen through the open door. I'm not convinced that's absolutely right. I think he might have even been able to be invited inside. And he embraced this Pentecostal message. He, had an, he, he embraced the truth of it, but he hadn't experienced the Pentecostal experience when he was in Houston. 
But somebody had, was visiting from Los Angeles, and uh, they'd heard Seymour preach, and they, their pastor had just resigned. They had, there was a little mission on 9th and Santa Fe Avenue in Los Angeles that Julia Hutchins had started. She wanted to be a missionary. She wanted to go to, to uh, Liberia. She was an African-American lady. Wanted, there was kind of a back-to-Africa movement after the, after the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. And she wanted to go there to be a missionary. But when she met a missions board, the missions board said, you don't have enough experience. I want you to start a church in America. And if you're successful at starting a church in America, we'll sponsor you to go to Africa. And so she started this little mission in the corner of Santa Fe and 9th in, in Los Angeles. She had obviously gathered enough experience and had resigned the church. And the lady that was visiting Houston from Los Angeles' name was Neely Terry. Neely Terry said to William Seymour, we'd like for you to come to Los Angeles to be the pastor of our mission, corner of Santa Fe and 9th. And uh, although Parham or Seymour has not yet received the Holy Ghost, he finally convinced Parham to let him go. And he made his way to Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, he preached there. He, he preached the Pentecostal message was, that was that you receive the baptism of the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. That mission was a holiness mission that believed that you were, when you were sanctified, which was what sometimes we call the second work of grace, that was the baptism of the Spirit. So... Seymour was preaching to a church and essentially saying, you think you're baptized in the Spirit, but you're really not. And uh, they weren't terribly pleased. Sister Hutchins was still, she hadn't left for Liberia yet. And so after a service or two, they basically locked the doors on him. But a family in the church, the Edward Lee family, kind of took, took, felt some compassion. We've invited this guy to come from Los from Houston, he's in Los Angeles, so let him, let's, let him stay in our house. And the Edward Lee family invited him in, and before long they started having cottage prayer meetings. And uh, Seymour sensed that hunger. He still had not yet received the Holy Spirit. He, he sent back to Houston and said, send Lucy Farrow. Lucy Farrow made her way to Los Angeles. She lay hands on Edward Lee, and Edward Lee began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave him utterance. And then Seymour received the baptism of the Spirit. And, the, and the, they started having a, a prayer meetings and little, what they would call in those days cottage meetings in a house on Bonnie Bray Street that belonged to the Asbury family, another African-American family in, in Los Angeles. And before long they outgrew the Asbury home and they found a little building down the road from Bonnie Bray around the corner, 312 Azusa Street. And for the next three years, the famous Azusa Street revival broke out and Pentecost spread across the world. I'll get to my grandmother. People came from everywhere to Azusa. One of my, one of my favorite Azusa stories uh, is a story that originates in Dunn, North Carolina, not too far up 
the coast from here. Uh, G.B. Cashwell was a holiness preacher from Dunn, North Carolina. He made his way on the train all the way across America to go to Azusa Street because he'd heard about it was in periodicals. And that was probably a five-day trip in those days on the train. He had fasted all the way to Los Angeles. So he made his way to 312 Azusa Street, expecting this incredible outpouring of the Spirit he'd been longing for and hungering for. And when he got, when he got to Azusa Street, he found out that the person leading Azusa Street was an African-American man. And he said, I can't do this. Went back to wherever he was staying and thank God, prayed through, came back to Azusa Street, knelt at Seymour's feet, said, would you pray for me? And Cashwell received the baptism of the Spirit. And most of the Pentecostal churches in the southeast, you can trace back to G.B. Cashwell. One of the people who visited Azusa was, a, uh, was William Durham, William H. Durham from Chicago, Illinois. He had a mission on North Avenue in Chicago, and he traveled out to Azusa Street seeking the baptism of the Spirit like many people did and, and received the baptism of the Spirit at Azusa Street. Went back to Chicago, and North Avenue Mission in Chicago became a hotbed for Pentecostal revival in the, in the Midwest. One of the people who came into the fullness of, who, of, of Pentecost on that North Avenue Mission was a young man named Robert Semple, uh, S-E-M-P-L-E. And after he had received the baptism of the Spirit, felt a call to preach in his life, he, he started evangelizing as an itinerant preacher. And he went up into the southern part of Ontario, the province of Ontario in Canada. And he was preaching in that rural southern, what was, was rural at that time, I'm not sure it's rural today, He's preaching, and, and the young Salvation Army lady came to hear him preach. Uh, the stories are told that Semple was an attractive young man, and the young lady, whose first name was Amy, was interested. And Amy was converted from the, her Salvation Army background into a full Pentecostal experience, and she married the preacher. She became Amy Simple. Amy and Robert went to Hong Kong shortly after they got married to be missionaries in Hong Kong. Uh, one, of the, one of the impulses and, uh, behind Pentecostalism is a missionary impulse. I'm so glad that Atlanta West is a missionary church because you can't be a Pentecostal church without being a missionary church. So they were doing missionary work. Amy was pregnant with her first child, and Robert caught some kind of disease and died. And Amy had to make her way back <clears throat> from Hong Kong. And before long, she married somebody named Harold McPherson. So you, maybe you're recognizing the name now, Amy Simple McPherson. I need to hurry with the story. She started evangelizing up and down the East Coast, and she made it all the way up the East Coast to Bangor, Maine. When she was holding a campaign in Bangor, Maine, a man from Woodstock, New Brunswick, 
came down to Bangor. His name was Edgar Grant. And Edgar Grant received the baptism of the Spirit and went back to Canada, the part of Canada that I'm from, New Brunswick, and started the Pentecostal revival in this little border town called Woodstock. In 1917, a guy from Idaho named John Deering came preaching through Woodstock. He brought the message of the oneness of God, the mighty God in Christ Jesus. And Edgar Grant became not a Trinitarian Pentecostal, but a oneness Pentecostal. He followed the restoration route back to the book of Acts, embraced that message. And really because of John Deering, growing up in New Brunswick, I didn't know any Trinitarian Pentecostals. If you were a Pentecostal in New Brunswick, you were a oneness Pentecostal. I'd heard tell there was a church in Moncton that was a Trinitarian Pentecostal church, but I had no idea what that meant. If you were Pentecostal, you were oneness because John Deering came. John, or Edgar Grant went down the St. John River a little bit. There's a little country church out there that they called the Round Top. The Round Top Church had a revival, and in that revival, Leonard Parent, so if you, if you know anything about a church in Pontiac, Michigan, the founder of that Pontiac church, Leonard Parent, was saved in that revival, a pioneer in New Brunswick called Earl Jakes, and then two brothers, Milford and Winstairs. Winstairs then decided to go to St. Stephen, New Brunswick, border of Maine and New Brunswick, across the river from Callis, Maine. He started a church in St. Stephen. But then he reached up to a little railroad town in the middle of the woods called McAdam in 1931. Started having street services. And in that street service in McAdam, my grandmother became the second person to receive the baptism of the Spirit. And she changed the trajectory of our family. All I know in life is Pentecost because that woman embraced a brand new message. And the reason I put that Howard Goss book in my heritage box is because who I am and where I'm from has everything to do with my grandmother who reached out and accepted this brand new work of God. Those stories shape our soul. So I, I want to spend the last little bit of my time tonight talking about perhaps how you can shape the story of your family, how it's important for you to think about a legacy that you're leaving, how you can learn to tell your story well. I, I told that horrible story about heritage boxes, but the truth of the matter is, after, I, I, when I, when I got in that class, I, I, I went to that class and Dan Seagraves, I think he's probably preached here before, Daniel Seagraves, was also a member of that class. And as he opened his heritage box and he talked about his father who was a preacher and his grandfather who was a preacher, the tears were running down his face. And I said that professor that I intensely disliked, she's probably on to something. So every Pentecostal history class I've taught from that day to this, we do a heritage box. Typically, those classes are one-week intensive classes, and on Wednesday night, Marsha and I invite the class to come to our house. Marsha fixes supper for them, and we sit around the fireplace, and people unfold their heritage box. Some of you have been in 
class and done that. Recently, I had somebody come uh, to do their heritage box, and, and I'll, I'll leave his name out of the story. But uh, he had been, he'd been struggling with an issue in his life. He had been raised by stepfather. He wasn't really close to his stepfather. And so he's kind of having a little crisis, and he was thinking about taking his birth father's name back because he felt like he just didn't have, they didn't have the same interests. He didn't have a bad relationship with his stepfather, but he didn't have a, a good relationship. He just said, why should I have this man's last name as my last name? When So he's doing that kind of struggle. And he said, I started to put together my heritage box, and I got thinking about what would go in my heritage box. And then, then he realized that it was my stepfather who got my family in church. And tears are running down his face by this time. And he was talking about, I'm going to keep my stepdad's name. Because the stepdad changed the trajectory of my family. So that heritage box, thinking about the past, shaped the future. So take some time. Carve out some time in a family vacation on a Saturday evening when you have some downtime with the kids and the grandkids and tell the story. Tell it as well as you can tell it. Use whatever artifacts that you can gather around to help you tell the story because you are telling a story whether you know you're telling a story or not. Amen. Tell it well. I, um, you heard I teach at UGST. Not only do I make them do heritage boxes, but I make them write a term paper. And I tell them in the term, when they're writing a term paper, work on your thesis statement, please, please. Tell me what you're going to tell me. Don't give me a report. In history, I would, I'll tell them, you're arguing for a point. You might not even know that you're arguing for a point, but you are. Your lack of understanding that you're arguing for a point doesn't mean you don't, you're not arguing for your point. So what you need to do when you're crafting your thesis statement is find out what in the world you're arguing for. What are you trying to say? I'd say that about your life. You are telling a story. You're telling your kids and your grandkids, and your nieces, and your nephews, and your neighbors a story. Figure out what you're telling them. Be intentional about crafting the story that will shape their future for the preferred future of apostolic life and heaven as an eternal reward. Tell your story. Take time. I am who I am today because we lived in my grandmother's backyard and, and almost... Every day, but every other day, stop by the house. And we would, we would have family devotions together. And she would tell me stories about what it was like when Pentecost came to Macadam. And she birthed in me a hunger to have that kind of experience for myself. Tell that story well. Make sure it's a good story. I, I will tell a story of someone else who did a heritage box, DJ. DJ wasn't... He hasn't had modern Pentecost movements yet, have you? Not at UGST, but he had it when I was teaching at the college. And uh, he's incredibly creative. You know that, right? <laughs> and I'll never forget DJ. DJ went in the tunnels. I'm sure he was supposed to be down there. But in the tunnels at Gateway, and he found an old box, an old wooden box that was beat up pretty badly. And I don't remember what was in your heritage box, 
All I remember is the box that you chose to bring. DJ brought the box and he pulled the artifacts out and he talked about his family. And then he said, he said, I'm going to have a better box for my kids. They're not going to have a beat up box that they found in the basement somewhere. I'm going to build a box that they can be proud of. Build a story. Tell a story with intention. Tell it. Tell it with intention. And don't just tell a story with intention. Live with intention. Figure out what you're going to say and say it. Say it well. Say it creatively. Tell it to them in the morning. Tell it to them in the evening. Tell it to them when you're on vacation. When you get another chance, tell them the story. Spend the time necessary. Every Wednesday night, my grandkids come to the house. We do supper together, and we talk about life. Because I'm telling a story that shapes their future. A couple of years ago, a colleague at work, Sister Sharon Davis, works in the insurance department. Her husband for years worked at Word of Flame. Her brother died. And he had, his dad was a pastor, but he had been out of church, lived a rough life. And when they went to the funeral, they weren't quite sure what the eternal status of that brother was. You've been there. You're at that funeral. It's your loved one laying in the casket. And you want, you want with everything that's within you for that person to be saved. It's when preachers get a little tempted to stretch just a little bit. Get that guy in heaven because you want to comfort the people. But The family was wrestling with, did my brother make it all the way back? And my, after the funeral, my wife and Sharon were talking. And I'll never forget what she said to my wife. She said, when, when I die, I don't want anybody at the funeral to wonder if I've made it. I want to live so everybody at the funeral knows if anybody's going to heaven, she's going to heaven. So I want you to stand together with me this evening and, and if the musicians come back, that would be my plea on this night when we talk about story, that the story that you write, that at the end of that story, when you're writing the last chapter and they're filing by the front of the church and they stop by the casket where you lay, everybody will know that person, that man, that woman, my grandpa, my grandmother, my uncle, my neighbor, I know they're in heaven because I've watched their story play out in front of me. No one can write that story except you. You can't really hire a ghostwriter to do this. You can get a PR firm to dress it up, but everybody knows the story behind the real story. You're writing it, folks. Write it with intention. Write it with purpose. And tell it often to the people that you love the most. You'll shape their destiny by telling your story.